Storie libere presents. He looked into my house and said, you have to promise that you will wait to leave after I arrive. And I was still bonded enough with him that I felt I could not say no. He said something like that. He needed to understand how Sheila was doing his work. So I will go, observe, he said, you don't have to work. He said, just take it easy, relax. And when I come, I will call you and I will adjust. He said something like one of his words, I will adjust. So that's what happened. In Osho's darkened room, Diksha has been listening to a speech that sounds to her like sheer lunacy. But that madness coming out of the master's mouth, his belief that one day he will be able to rule a new world thanks to a dark force he is in contact with and which he will be able to handle, suddenly seems to illuminate everything. Osho quotes Hitler and calls him a genius. Diksha connects all the events she has witnessed over the years. The master's materialism, the fictions, his demands not to interfere, but instead to teach others to bow. The manipulations, the abuse, the violence, and the lawyer's warning that they will all end up in jail. It all comes together as if in a vortex, or perhaps as a push that would have her get out of there as soon as possible. But Osho asks her one more thing and she cannot refuse to go and check what is happening at Rajnishpuram. And he confides in her his opinion of Sheila, a woman to be used as long as necessary, but whom he will get rid of as soon as she has completed his task. I'm Roberta Lippi and I write for a living. I've written for print media, TV, radio, online, and finally with voice, two podcasts for Storie Libere. Soli and love bombing. In the past years, I've had an epiphany that led me to telling those stories, which today led into the one I'm about to share with you, a long confession, or perhaps what we should more simply call a report of events, events that only a few people know about, and which from today, you will know about too. This is Dragon Lady. The Last Witness. By now, Diksha, in her mind, is already gone. However, she has to fulfill the Guru's demands and find the right time to leave. In the meantime, Rajnish does not skimp on further confidences that make it increasingly clear that the man has a definite plan, even if his talk seems delusional. He said that he was only using Sheila, that he needed Sheila uh, ruthlessness. He said, you know, don't worry, you know, uh, it's a question of time. Um, uh, Sheila will outgrow her usefulness, you know. But Sheila is important now because Sheila's ruthlessness is what I need, he said, to make things happen. And I'm sure that at the time he was telling Sheila, Oh, Diksha is negative, Uh, I will get rid of Diksha, don't worry. I'm sure, I mean, knowing him. I went to the ranch, and I I remember the first two days I didn't do it, not much. Then I helped maybe one day in the kitchen, helping the laundry. But I could see that 
people were looking at me differently. So I know, I'm sure that Sheila maybe sent a message that Diksha is negative or Diksha is on this way out. Uh, don't pay attention to her. I remember when I arrived and he looked and there was a few group of us that, you know, waited for him at Hadi Hyde. And I, I could see, I, my God, why did I even wait it? I could see that uh, it was done for me. It was done. It was, and that's why I left. And strangely enough, it was a coincidence. The days his arrival, the, the few days, coincided with my 10-year so-called initiation from him. Exactly 10 years. And as he, well, you know, we, we, we gather around the, in the garden of his new house, who was a trailer, you know, like one of the prefab houses, I realized, wow, I just, 10 years ago, I was initiated by Langwa. And in that moment, I felt that there was a, almost like a, a moment of synchronicity for me that got me permission to say to myself, fine, you give 10 years now, it's enough, you can go. All people who sooner or later leave the commune, especially the ones who have important roles, find that they have to do it on the sly. Diksha understands that she has to come up with an excuse. I had rented a car and I kept the car and the car needed to be returned, so we took the excuse. And I also told to the secretary there that I make a long uh, distant call that I was going for a break in Italy and said to people, oh, my uncle is waiting for me, send me a ticket. You know, I, I lie in a way. So the people knew that there were people outside. And so I made a point to call my uncle in Italy because I knew that I was afraid by then that they would arrange an, an accident, you know, because I think it would have been more convenient that to me go and leave. While the others are at dinner, Diksha and her partner decide that the time has come. Diksha had arranged in the afternoon for somebody to bring her suitcases. In those days, she's staying in Sheila's house, and as she's packing, someone enters the room. And then somebody must have told Sheila, Diksha is packing, so she came into the room. And then... And then I, we had our last discussion where I said, I'm, Sheila, I, I, I'm not against you. I don't give a shit about uh, what you and uh, Bhagwan are doing or doing. Uh, I'm not interested. I'm not against you. I'm not for you. But I'm leaving. It's not for me. This, I cannot do this. But if I hear that one of the person of and the supposedly blacklist is hurt or die, then I will speak up. And Sheila kind of laughed, not, you know, kind of uh, said, ha-ha, you know, kind of laughed and said, oh, but you are, a, you are on the list now. You are the first in the list. And, and that's how I, our last conversation ended, more or less. And we did this during dinner where people were having dinner so that I didn't have uh, to say goodbye. I didn't want to say goodbye because, of course, I was heartbroken. There was the people that I worked or knew for many years, uh, and 
even though I bat head with um, not all, but many of them, I still had the feeling of love, friendship, uh, um, warmth, uh, caring. And there were maybe one or two that saw me and said, oh, what's going on? You said, oh, you know, we're going. We just didn't really say, it. oh, I'm leaving. Except to one person that came and she looked at me and I looked at her and she hugged me and we both kind of cry. And I said, it's okay, it's okay, I need a break, I need a break. And that's how I left. After 10 years in the service of the Guru and his commune, Diksha, the terrible Diksha, the dragon lady whom everyone fears, bursts the bubble she has been living in and runs away. The power offered to her by Rajneesh no longer entices her. On the contrary, she knows her common sense, her pragmatism, her rationality with respect to the world and reality will only be misused. Thus she leaves Rajnishpuram, a utopian city that, through the sweat of followers, will grow even larger than Pune. The years that follow will see, in addition to the houses and meditation centre and huge canteen, a hospital, an airport, a public transportation system with more than 85 buses, fields, vineyards, and the Krishnamurti Lake, built from scratch by the Sanyasins. The city becomes self-sustaining. Between 1984 and 1985, the commune will reach 6,000 inhabitants. Difficulties with the neighborhood will lead to a political confrontation involving threats, poisonings, election fraud, attempted murders and weapons. The case will spread past the county and involve four government agencies, including the FBI. When Diksha leaves in 1981, she knows she's on the list, as are many other unsuspecting sannyasins. I was not really, I was, yeah, kind of concerned I was not really afraid because I thought, uh, even when I saw them making the list, uh, that it was uh, kind of an aberration. A part of me took them seriously because they really were serious, but a part of me took that they were lunatic and that most probably they will not do it in a way. No, I was not really afraid. No, not really, not really. I know that they were... I would not say evil, but there was an element of, uh, I mean, they were criminal, you know, they they were really taught, uh, the way they were planning to do this community, it was really the facade, but behind, it was really getting money from drug deal, getting money for people that do prostitution, you know, so it was criminal, what they were doing. So like all criminals, you know, if you, go against them, they may harm you. But for some level, yeah, I was concerned, but I would not say that I was really afraid. I had moments that I was afraid that if they find us or what, yeah. I felt uh, bad, I felt embarrassed. Later on, I felt guilty for the role that I play in the community, you know, like the dragon lady, the Zen master, pushing people to work so hard in the kitchen to produce food so we could sell it and we could pay, 
you know, for the ashram, whatever bill they need. Yeah, later on. At the time, at the beginning, I didn't feel guilty. I felt like an idiot. I felt that I, I will not say wasted, but I think that I, I felt uh, embarrassed and ashamed that I had not seen through him. Yes, I felt uh, kind of, yeah, an, an idiot that I had not seen what really he was about. And even Sheila, that I had been befriended and I was, I worked with, with her for years. We saw each other every day at lunch, dinner, the thing together, you know, we supported each other. I, I, I had not seen for power that she was ready to kill people, whatever, whatever she did, poison people, what they did later on, try to kill, you know, like the... Uh, district attorney, I mean, uh, and this is the person that I had lunch for years together. And I must say that, to be fair, it did change. I don't think he was an angel <laughs> before, but the man that I met in 71 was not the man that I left in 81, where his speech will be blurred sometime at night, he will take four, six volume, and the night that he told me that he would rule the world, he was high on something, you know, like, you know, he was taking already nitrous oxide, not at the castle, not when I was there, but in Pune, the end of Pune. And so I do think that his drug addiction did uh, contribute to his mental demise. You know, and, and and this happened all the time with famous people. They start drinking, they start abusing drugs, you know, famous poet, writer, actor, and anybody. So he's no different. But of course, we thought, I thought that he was different, but he was not. So for me, it was more a time of reckoning with my own uh, stupidity and blindness. How did I accept uh, even when things in Pune were dissonant note. Something happened a few times in Pune that there were things that were not right. How did I always bury them? And it's true that in that sense, I after I left, I felt guilty because I felt I had been an instrument to, to condition people to surrender. He had used me in a way as the dragon. So people had learned to surrender, had been forced to surrender and been brainwashed to surrender. So I will say that people that work in Vrindavan were considered, even by him when he talked to Lakshmi, good disciple. When I went to, to make the list, I made the list for the people to bring to America, there were other people that I would like to come on the list. I remember I said, no, bring your people. They are the best worker, the best. Because, of course, they had been conditioned, how can I say, to surrender. So I felt guilty when I left. I don't want to say that I broke people's will, but in a way that I participated in conditioning people to surrender, that surrender was a value in itself as a disciple, that surrender should overrule your own inner voice, your conscience, your intelligence. There is a moment in the lives of all sannyasins who have left the community 
that becomes extremely symbolic of that separation, which is never peaceful because it brings with it disappointment, sadness, anger, resentment, and that is the moment when one gets rid of the mala. It also happens to Diksha, who, unlike others, keeps it for a few months and wears it when she happens to meet sannyasins to avoid having them ask her where it went. So I did wear it a few times. And then a few months later, for several other things that happened, that I don't know why one morning I woke up with the utmost clarity that it was a residual. It was an object. Like we always gave a lot of value to the mala, that mala was the connection between you and him. I felt almost this uh, uh, unhealthy, in a way, attachment to just a mala with this picture. I felt it was time to let it go, that, I, you know, he was not a friend. He was not my teacher uh, anymore. So I did um, took this picture and I threw it in a lake, in the lake. And it was kind of uh, liberating in a way. Like I felt uh, it was really a vestige of the past. Because also I felt that it's not that he had respected what he had told me at the beginning, to me personally, that many times he had said, Several times, this is just a phase. Even in Pune, when there were issues, there is just a phase. One day we will go and live in the Himalaya or somewhere up country where he will just spend the last few years with the few disciples where I really got it, whatever he meant, enlightenment. Or I felt that he had betrayed me. I feel I didn't betray him. So throwing the mala away was not in any way a rejection of him to me. It was me acknowledging that there was nothing. There was nothing of value anymore. Other people don't feel that way, but I know that even Lakshmi, and I'm sure even Vivek felt at the end, and other people. So it was simple. I didn't throw away with anger, maybe with a tinge of sadness, but also a sense of liberation. In the meantime, however, the community does not forget about Diksha. Quite the contrary. Rumours begin to circulate that she left once she realised that Sheila would take her share of power as well, and that, moreover, she departed with money that she had hidden in Switzerland. I think Sheila wanted to discredit me, but this is not true. I never took any money. I had two persons who were working with me as an accountant, and so any um, income that was coming into the kitchen would be counted at the end of each day, and uh, some money would be put by side for the shopping for the next day or to buy something extra, like maybe pot or dishes or whatever the kitchen needed. I used to make also some clothes for some of the work who didn't have enough money. And the rest was given to Lakshmi. And Lakshmi who worked with me for so many years, would testify. I had very little left. I lost everything in a way. I'd given 
everything. So it was very hard for me to put my life back together because I could not go back uh, being a translator or freelancing like I did or any kind of business that I, I did when I was younger and made no sense after I lost my contact. But I would say that I was fortunate enough that I was helped by my family and then had a partner who was very able, capable, and together we built, I will say, a good life again for ourselves. Diksha knows many truths when she leaves the movement, but she cannot discuss them with anyone. She cannot talk about them with her few friends who remain inside because they do not believe her nor want to listen to her. Much less can she mention them to anyone outside the community because revealing her past with Rajneej would instantly discredit her. Like many other sannyasins who have left the movement, she looks to lose herself in the world. At least she tries to. I kept what I knew for a long time. It was me and, at the time, my partner. We would talk between the two of us. Of course, we revisited uh, our story. We did try to understand what had happened. And I did uh, talk to some of his followers, personal friends. But I, almost right away, I find out that I couldn't. Anytime I try to say something slightly factual of what has happened, they will stop me. They will say, oh, we don't want to hear that. Oh, you're just negative. Oh, it's because you were kicked out. I will say, no, it's not true. I'm the one who decided to leave. They will say, oh, that's not the story that we heard. I don't know what kind of story that I had become, uh, whatever, negative or that she had taken my power away from me, and that's why I left. And so, and even when I was trying to tell them, I never managed to tell them really what I knew. I always did sanitize what I was saying to them. I never tell the thing about Vivek being hit. I didn't tell them about uh, the sexual escapade, the sexual abuse that he was doing with some of us, no. Other thing, I didn't say it. I, I try to say it, but always in a kind of veil form. And then I realized over time that I could not uh, even share it. It was impossible. I didn't share what I knew because I feel that people were not able to process. The image of Rajnish was so idyllic and so that they saw me as the devil, that I was trying to destroy their idol, God, how could I? You know, people say, how could you? You've been 10 years with him and now you're betraying him. How could you? And I didn't even say to people outside because it would automatically discredit me. If I had a couple new friends or friends or people that I met when I went back to Switzerland, I was uh, unable to say it to them because I knew that if I told them, I maybe would lose their friendship. Something happens all of a sudden, however, something we haven't talked about yet. 
Diksha's mother is also a sannyasin. She had joined the movement in India, where she went to check on her daughter, and there she too became fascinated by Osho, and so decided to take sannyas and spend part of her time in the community. So my mother came uh, to Bombay to check it out, to make sure that I was okay. She, she didn't understood, and she, of course, the moment she arrived, you know, Rajneesh showered her with attention and treated her very well because, of course, you know, he seduced her and gave her a special seat right away the same evening in Bombay. And so she uh, took sannyasi and, and on and off came to live in India. Till the end of Pune, she was in Pune when I left. So when I left, I didn't tell my mother the truth. I didn't want to spoil it for her. She already at the time had left Pune because he had gone to America and she was staying in Milan. So I never thought that she would go to the ranch. It was the beginning. I, I didn't think that. And I didn't want to break the bubble. The background was not really what we had thought. I thought that maybe it will fade out slowly. But unfortunately, while I was in Australia, the person that was going around Europe to contact the disciple to get money for the community contacted my mother and they were very nice with her, very uh, flattery, very seductive. My mother knew that I was in, uh, in Australia and I, that I had somehow broken with the community without knowing why. I told her that I could not really work with Sheila. I didn't really talk about Rajneesh. So they told my mother that my refusal to work with Sheila was one of my last barriers to become enlightened. The Bhagwan was working on me to break my last resistance to become enlightened. And they invited her to come to the ranch. And when she was at the ranch, and after a while she, she wanted or she needed to go, they said that it was good for her to be at the ranch because she would be the magnet that make me go there. So she even wrote me a letter from the ranch saying, everything is beautiful, things are really flourishing, calm, etc., etc. While she was at the ranch, I got a phone call from somebody near Sheila who, in a veil but very clear way, treated me in the way saying, your mother is here, she's very happy, you can come and visit her, we are taking well care of her, but you know, she's old, she maybe, we hope that nothing bad happened to her. You know, it was clear that they were threatening me, that, you know, she couldn't, she could go maybe and walk. I hope that, I, I, I know your mother, my mother is a great walker. I know your mother likes to walk. I hope that maybe one day she doesn't go up a hill and she doesn't, that something happened to her. I already had been contacted by the government at the time to testify, and I felt at the time that I didn't want at the beginning. I didn't want to, to break the bubble for other people. But when, after this phone call, the phone call was for me the deciding factor that made me decide if the government 
contacted again, I will tell my side of the story. Intimidation is one of the main means used by sex to keep followers in line, especially those who know too much. We will never know whether this move was Osha's idea or Sheila's. What we do know is that Diksha is the only person who knew the facts besides them. And Diksha, who had not gone along with the threats Sheila made to her that night in front of her open suitcase, now, when faced with the intimidation directed at her mother, goes back to being the dragon lady so many feared, and focuses intently on her objectives. The first is to get her mother back. The second is to speak out. Thanks to my uncle, he managed to convince her to leave again. So after a while, my mother fortunately left the ranch. And after she left, we find out that the, the people that had come to Milan who were collecting money had convinced her to uh, cash her annuity and they clean her bank account, and they empty her the jewelry box, who we had some nice, important jewelry in the bank, in the safety. So my mother, when she came back, was totally owned. She, she was 78 at that time, and she was literally in the street. Literally. Literally. My uncle came and picked her up at the airport, and after she arrived, when they went to the bank... He find out that uh, her account had been clean and the banker explained that my mother had arrived a few months before with this two Sanyasi woman and that she had cleaned the account fully. And so if it was not for my uncle, my mother would have been in the street. It is 1983, with her mother out of the community Aware of all that is happening at the ranch thanks to news reports about the movement, and knowing that the organization is closer to a criminal organization than a peaceful spiritual group, Diksha decides to speak out. By this time, she has already been contacted by the US government once, and after an initial hesitation, she decides to speak to them. When the thing happened with my mother, after she came back, I decided that it was time to talk. And so when they contacted me the second time, I said, yes, I will tell them what I know. That's simple. The government started interviewing me. Many things they knew. I will not say everything, but most of the things. They knew. They already had had some other people. I was I was not the only one. The other people, other so-called Tanyazi, had left. And even the government had made inquiry in India. So they knew about the, the bombing or the book was uh, done by us. They knew about uh, a lot of... Actually, they knew things that I didn't know it. They knew they had traced uh, some money that Sheila managed to convince Lakshmi of Ashramani to give to her brother in Chicago to invest, and then the brother lost it, of course, quote-unquote. They knew about that, and they asked me if I knew it. 
And I told them what I knew from Bhagwan that they told me that Sheila had taken some money, but that, that she would give it back. And that she knew, he knew that Bhagwan told me personally that Sheila has taken money. I know that. But uh, I let her, I let her do it. Don't worry, she will give it back. But then when I called, talked to Lakshmi, she confirmed it, that what the government told me was actually true. So there were things that they knew more than me. And other thing, they knew about us meeting. I mean, Bhagwan, that I met him. They knew that, I I mean, some people maybe at the castle told the story. I don't know. They knew, and I confirmed it, and I add what I knew that was true. And I must say that uh, with all honesty, that the people that I met with the government, they were absolutely not in trying to discredit Rajneesh Bhagwan, the community, with untrue story. They were absolutely not trying to persecute him. They heard some story and, they, and I would say, no, I don't know about this. They say, oh, maybe this is a rumor. I mean, my experience absolutely is not what the Rajneeshi today want the rest of the world to know. It was not persecuted. This is a, a bunch of people that poison literally 600 people in a in a city i mean how they can even today try to justify that or the fact that they try to poison a, another government official they're trying that they're having a plan to shoot the attorney general i mean this is a big crime we're not talking about minor thing we are talking about criminality you can dress this as you want it but it remained for what it is. This was a criminal organization. But how does a spiritual leader turn into the head of a criminal organization? Are his followers really willing to do anything for him because of that state of surrender that he has cultivated in them over the years? Are some more predisposed than others? How do you identify those who will agree to anything? It is very simple if you have a database. This is a, a classic technique that most sectors uh, do. I will say that most sectors, being that they become your family, you tell your friend or you tell one of the maybe supervisor or the leader, you secret, whatever they are, sexual secret thing that you've done in the past, that you were ashamed. You know, they are endless, the small thing in our life that we've, are kind of embarrassed about. Particularly in our sect, where during the group, people were encouraged and brought to a, a state of breakdown in one of the groups that happened in Pune, that I know one of the guy confronted another guy and, and screamed, I have killed before, I would kill you, I got away. And I will kill you. I will, if you, they were, you know, in the kind of encounter group. There were other situations similar where people blurt out when you put under extreme pressure, whatever they have done, drug deal or then done something, they molested their sister. I mean, therapists know, like people who, to do primal therapy, 
no, is to provoke them so that their original trauma that they had maybe with their mother or, or, or father, or they would, in a sense, face it. So, unfortunately, in our group, once you have divulged your secret, and I know that that secret were reported from the head therapy to the main office, and certain files were made about certain people. And that information was used later on by Sheila, sometimes to blackmail the people and sometimes to use them for, for the community. And I don't know if at the beginning it was done maliciously, but I can say that, for instance, when Sheila was uh, trying to figure out who of the people in the ashram could build the firebomb to burn the book, she looked into the file and looked who had like a degree in chemistry. And not only this, she also looked to the old file to people that had been during the student years, part of the revolutionary movement in Germany and in Italy. Because as we know, uh, the student movement in Italy and in Germany became violent. And some of the people who had uh, been, uh, I will say, in contact with the so-called Red Brigade were in Puna. And then through this inquiry, they find two people who built the firebomb to burn the book. As Diksha speaks to me, she convincingly calls the Sanyazin movement a cult. She recognizes its patterns and modalities. Our group was a, a cult, a sect, but it was not like this at the beginning. When I met him, it was not a cult. It was a teacher. His name was Acharya Rajneesh. And then he called himself Bhagavan, God. But he said that I have to use the name. I have to change it. It's not really because I think I'm God. He explained it in, in a different way. But I think sect and cult are really bad. People don't are not aware when you, you are in a, in a cult how detrimental can be even for your own spiritual life. And the rule about being a cult are, are change over time. At the beginning, in our cult, you, one could choose to be wear white and orange. Then it was suggested that you were only orange. Then it was suggested that people wear the necklace with this picture. Then uh, when we moved to Pune, there was a, a already like a change. Like if you really were one of his better disciples, then you will work in the ashram. Then you will give your money to the ashram. Then you will even bow to him. At the beginning, when you went to his room, you just went to his room. You sat on the floor, sometimes even on his bed or in the same room, and you didn't bow. Maybe during Purnima day, you know, a special day that where the disciple go in front of the guru and he blessed them. So it was really like a, a, a series of small changes. The fact that we start only be friends with the people in our group. The outside world is really seen slowly, I would say, as 
the element. People don't understand us. We were told that people, that the outside world cannot understand us. They only can have misconception. They, they could only understand if they themselves became a follower. So the gap between us and the world deepened, I, I would say, every year without us being aware. I mean, I always, everybody used the same analogy and I will use it too. It's like the frog in hot water. You are not aware that the water is becoming hot. It's not only the fact that we were wearing the same clothes and also we were all, of course, I already was vegetarian, but it was obvious that we were vegetarian in the ashram in Pune because you know, most Indians are vegetarian. But then if once in a while one of us who had not been vegetarian before would go to a restaurant in Pune or in Bombay to have like an omelette or something else who was not vegetarian, it was frowned upon. The people had to hide. I know that certain people did it even in Pune. And even once in Pune, I went out with a friend who had, and he had an omelette. And then I was also reprimanded. How could I do that? And it was wrong. Or... So there were all these small restrictions who at the beginning, we took them voluntarily and then they became so ingrained in our way of life that only when I left, I saw a many restriction I had been under. One thing that people from the outside don't realize uh, is the, the, also the financial de dependence that people usually that become part of a sect or find themselves in. Because at the beginning, people still had jobs, they maybe went back to work a couple of months or half a year and then came back to India to stay and again they left. But then once they decide to stay in India, only a percentage had were from rich family who could afford not to work. But the other that had a job before, by renouncing the job, they renounced their income in a way. They had no income. They maybe sold their car, they maybe have a little apartment, had a share in a business, and they cashed in. Many people, many times, people were told by him, go back, close your house, sell whatever you have, come. I remember one particular case that I was translating for him in Bombay, where he said, you go, close, whatever you have, you know, you can bring, give to Lakshmi for the new community and then uh, you'll be here and you will be taken care of. So many people that I know find themselves totally dependent of the community, not only for their food or lodging, but even if they needed to buy some toothpaste or shampoo. And this totally financial dependency, without us being aware, make us more compliant, more surrender in a way. Suddenly, he was everything. He was our savior, our father, our guru, our provider. It was everything. So in that way, sectors are extremely dangerous and bad. And whatever they promise, they don't deliver. Of course, there are people that are today in different sects who will say no, that they got a lot out of being a sect. Even people who have been in, in my cult believe that. And I say, good for them. 
good for them. I'm talking for the one who didn't have this experience, who were really trapped. I also can say with utmost sincerity that I have people who told me privately after I left that they also would have liked to have my courage, if I can say that in their word, not in mine, because it was also courage, but also part of, out of desperation in a way to realize that he was not the, the teacher that I thought he was. And that they would like to be able to leave, but they couldn't. They, they felt ashamed, they felt embarrassed. How will I go back to my family? How will I support myself? And this would happen when the ranch fall down, that many were left really stranded. Some of the women, young and pretty, resort to pole dancing or even prostitution, or some of the men did drug deal, and they were really in dire strait. So sects are, and I don't use this word lightly, but I will use it in this case, evil. They're up to no good. They're up to no good. What they say is not what they do. They can promise you the moon. They can promise you enlightenment. They can promise you whatever they want. But in my experience, I will say, I don't want to say never, 99,9 of sect are hurting people. Even though some of the people that are in the sect, including me, when I was in the court, I was not aware that I was exploited, that it was not good for my moral character. It was not good for ethics to be in a sect. I was not aware. It's only with time. Also because when you are in a sect, you hear only each other's voice. The guru, the leader, the philosophy, the belief system of the sect is what you hear 24 hours a day. You live in a community, you share a room with other people, you meditate together, you eat together. All your emotional connection, boyfriend, girlfriend, is almost incestuous. You not only you are brainwashed, but you brainwash each other by repeating the same thing. Or oh, did you hear what he said today? Was it not great? And anytime you are maybe in a kind of doubtful state of mind, you will find somebody that will say, that will reinforce uh, uh, the belief system of the sect. You will get a hug and say, I understand you're going through a difficult moment, but don't worry, this is part of uh, letting go. The thing is that certain meditation, some are very peaceful, but some of our meditation were actually very intense and tended to break you down. And what we have been sold, even toward the end of Puna, that this technique was to, in a sense, dismantle your social persona so that Bhagavan, he will build you back up or the community was the right place where you could find your true nature outside. But in reality, our persona were dismantled methodically through meditation, the various kinds of meditation, like the dynamic meditation is kind of powerful, but also dangerous meditation, and other technique. And then you bought into the old belief system 
the Rajneesh system, Bhagwan system, ocean. So you were you left yes a cage, let's say society. Of course, in society, we each society has their own rule, and we have to learn how to function in that rule. And then you find yourself, yeah, you left that, and then you find yourself in a different cage, and in a way, a much tighter cage. The condition that I've been talked till now is kind of the soft conditioning, that set soft, relatively soft. The conditioning is more like a, a dismantling of a personality, and then you are built up again as a member of the sect. You wear special clothes, you, you become vegetarian or whatever, but you follow precise rules. But over time, even toward the end of Puna, where there was more, I would say, unsettlement, so people freaked out during the group. There were a lot of unrest, also because we were tight, the ashram was more tight. And in that particular time, even before that, actually the last two years, some of the people that were participating in some group did flip out. The group started to be more heavy, more violent. From my point, from the people that were in charge, we felt that we were losing control. And in that situation, they started to suggest uh, to certain people to take Valium. I know that the head therapist, they will suggest uh, if they will trip out, uh, hear some Valium, go home and sleep it off. And I know in cases that somebody flipped out in the middle of the group and they were given a shot of tranquilizer who make the person like for three, four days, he was out of his mind. He was kind of incapacitated. And not only this, that toward the end of Puna, the people that Sheila didn't like were, were managed or were convinced or were told that it was better for them to relax. And they were brought to our medical center and were given tranquilizer. People at the ranch were given tranquilizer, were prevented to leave, were literally kidnapped so that they didn't leave. So it happened already in Pune. At the castle, at the beginning, I started to have a kidney problem because I, I, I will forget to drink. And Pooja said, why don't you take this twice a day? It will help you. And it was actually a Valium. I showed the other doctor. They said, this is a Valium. Why Shula is giving you a Valium? So this was, it looked like Valium was considered panacea for everything. I, of course, he loved Valium. He was taking it. I saw him in front of me taking it, so maybe that's what he thought. When we arrived at the ranch, in Sheila trailer, there was uh, uh, a jug, a jug of uh, um, orange juice that had value in it. And people that would come and see Sheila for certain things, certain people will be given the orange juice and then would be made to wait 10, 20 minutes till the value got affected so that when she will see Sheila will be more relaxed. And this happened when I was still there. So clearly by the time at the end of Puna and at the ranch, they were literally drugging people without they knowing. In Pune, at least they give you the volume because you're not well, go and sleep it off for 24 hours. But at the ranch, people didn't know that in that particular jug of orange, who was for the guest, quote-unquote, was actually drugged. There were, there were volume in it. A person that I know from the ranch who testified that wanted to live, 
He was prevented to leave and he was drugged for a few days, 24 hours a day, because the person knew he had played an important role in building a community. And then at the time he realized that what they were doing was illegal. And he was a man who had a sense of ethic and and he also was an engineer, so he, he didn't want, of course, to be part of a criminal organization. So he decided to leave. And he wrote a letter to Bagwan, gave it to Sheila. Sheila came back, said that Bagwan said that it would be better for you to, you have to relax, you have to tire. Similar to what I've been told by him at the castle. So the same script. And they literally forced him to take the medication. Literally, physically, that there was Sheila, the nurse, there were two men in the room, that he had no choice. Take this, you need to relax. Of course, he had been working for like two, two years, 16 hours a day. And he, he was sedated for a, a while, I mean, several days. And of course, uh, he said that he would wake up in the morning to just pee and then drink something. Then again, they will come and give him a centigrade. Really, he was kept prisoner in... Sheila house in Sheila trailer. After they had drafted him, he acquiesced to remain. He said, yes, I was wrong. He acted like they had broken him, that they won. And after a while, after I think a couple of months, he managed to escape. And also he had to do it totally on the slide. He invited a family member to come and visit him. And then he managed to say, oh, I'm going to talk to him. And actually, he ran away. He had to literally run away. In my case, it's different because I managed, because of my position, I managed to leave. But if they could, they would have dragged me too. Yet, at some point in September 1985, even the villainous Sheila the one who ran Rajnishpuram by acting as Osho's spokeswoman, while Osho spent years in silence, thus depriving his followers of the lectures that had so captivated them, which they could only watch in video replay, is on the edge. After forming an army ready to fight, poisoning 750 people, bringing homeless people into the community and passing it off as an act of philanthropy, when in fact, it is meant to sway an election, trying to kill government officials and others who are dangerous to the community, bugging every corner of the ashram, checking the correspondence of every single inhabitant, arranging false marriages, sending children to living communes far from their parents, devising a laboratory in which to store bacteria and viruses, after all this and more but especially after the arrival of new Californian adherents whom the master seems to much prefer over her, Sheila reaches her point of no return. And as others have done before her, secretly and with great haste, she flees. The real person who is a fault is him. He did it. He is the one who chose Sheila. She implemented this directive in, in her crazy way, but... He was behind. Sheila maybe once in a while did the flavor, came up with maybe some uh, detail, but there's only one culprit, it's him. 
Of course, Sheila was second in command, the people that worked for Sheila, the same way in Pune. I was under him. Of course, I did uh, my share of mistake, but I was there because of him. He could have snapped his finger and I would have been out in, in a day. And the same with Sheila. So there's only one culprit, it's him. But also all the people behind him that enable him, you know, the people that went and actually put the poison in the salad bar. I mean, what the fuck were they thinking? Or Puja that uh, tried to, you know, kill his doctor that injected him. All the other things that they did, it's not that they did it, it's not that he came out of his room. He needed people to do it for him. So, of course, he was out of his mind, and, and the people that did it was out of his mind, too. Sheila had, in her own way, a very limited understanding of moral and ethics. And whatever he told her to do, she was ready to do it. He told me about Sheila. He told me that uh, Sheila was a a ruthless person, that she had no moral. And that's why he was using her. So my observation with Sheila, and I'm talking about then, not now. I don't know how she is now. I don't know. But I know that then that she was ready, like I heard her say in front of me, that she was ready to kill for him. So this is Sheila. I think she did what she did in the four years that she was his secretary because he had, in a way, former. Whatever she did in the last, in the four years that she was with him, of course, I will say that 90%, 99% was under his directive. And I must add that also she added her flavor. Sheila, yes, she did follow Bhagwan directing, I can say, because I know what they planned at the castle, which Sheila is what happened at the ranch. So I can testify that it was him that was giving Sheila the directive. But I can also say that in certain situations, Sheila was ruthless. I can also say that Sheila has another aspect that I met year before, you know, the aspect that made her fall in love with her husband, who I remember when they arrived that were, you know, she was in love, she was caring toward him. She was caring toward him, but not as caring to let him die naturally. She told me that they discussed that at the time uh, where he was in too much pain that he that she will help him to die. And that's uh, not what happened. I know that he was afraid of dying and this is this I think the excuse that Sheila used when she instructed the nurse to give him the, a fatal dose. It is true that he was very sick, but it's also true that he didn't know. He didn't know this. The event Diksha discusses is the death of the woman's first husband, Mark Harris Silverman, with whom Sheila arrives first in Bombay in 1973 and then later in Pune. The man has health problems that will worsen during his stay in the ashram, and Sheila will discuss with Bhagwan his euthanasia. This is one of the many secrets that few people know, and one of the many that Sheila shares with Osho. 
even though they share these secrets, when she escapes by taking refuge in Switzerland, a back and forth of bitter mutual recrimination begins between her and the master. She maybe didn't expect him to start uh, accusing her like she was the guilty party. So I, th- I don't think she expected that. She seemed kind of surprised. Uh, maybe she had hope that by her leaving, he would have said, oh, say, mm, goodbye, Sheila, in a way like Lakshmi left. Uh, and even after I left, you know, he didn't say much or maybe he said that I missed it, that I... I was negative, that I I missed the boat. But I think she didn't expect him to really using her as a scapegoat, like the only scapegoat. Like he told her that that she and her gang were, uh, that she will get in jail forever. You know, so he went, um, in a way, under attack with her. And she didn't, I don't think she expected that. And at the time that he did that, it was before he found out that she had taped uh, his chair and therefore she knew she, that she had proof in a way that he was also behind what was happening at the, at the ranch. So at that time, she rebutted him, no? saying... Oh, uh, Bhagwan, you're a, yeah, a beautiful man, but also you're manipulating people. So they were going at each other's throat, in a way. And then they most probably did a deal, because from what I heard is that the government did try new find out that she had taken tapes that could prove that he was involved. Too. And so they were trying to get the tape and that uh, Sheila had brought them to Switzerland but had given to a lawyer so that they should only be used in case she herself died unexpectedly or something happened. And so they made kind of a deal. She will not give the government the tape proving that he was involved because then he would not have been able to just get a slap on the wrist and leave the country, like he did. And then he would stop talking about hers. So the commune didn't press charges against Sheila. Of course, he said that she had taken $40 million and all this. So the commune could have taken charge. So the government prosecuted Sheila without the help of the organization. Osho is left without his main shield and sword to deal with all the crimes committed and the management of an immense community. His current secretary, chosen from among new followers from the wealthy world of Hollywood, certainly cannot patch up a reality she doesn't even understand. In this moment of crisis, Osho sends a message to Diksha that he would like her back at the ranch as soon as possible. You've been listening to Dragon Lady, a podcast written and curated by Roberta Lippi, with Valeria Ardito's sound design. The international voice of Roberta Lippi is Cecilia Gragnani. Dragon Lady is available on storielibere.fm and wherever you listen to podcasts. I'll be waiting for you on the next episode. 
Storie Libere Production by Gianandrea Cerone and Rossana De Michele. Post and Sound Design Era Zero.